This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Good evening Cherries fans and welcome to another evening with on Up the Cherries in all departments. Tonight's guest is a former Cherry who's also represented the likes of Leicester City, performing in the Premier League and also other clubs like Boston United, Macclesfield and Shrewsbury just to name a few. Uh, If you haven't guessed already, it's former winger Danny Thomas. Hello Danny and welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. How are you? Yeah, all good. Thank you very much. Um, let's get going with it. Um, so, born in 1981, um, how did you get into football when you were growing up? In terms of getting into football, I was lucky. So, literally, like you said, I was born in Leamington and the area, even the street, so to speak, that I was born on or, or grew up in, um, there was about 10 or 15 kids who were literally kind of the same age or there thereabouts. And we all had similar interests as you did back in the day. You'd go out as soon as the day's kind of, uh, well, as soon as daylight comes, it's like go out and play unless you've got to go to school and whatever else. So we had a park, a massive park, which is still there directly behind uh, my mum and dad's house where I grew up. And as I mentioned, the park was massive uh, and we could just go there and play. Uh, and all, all we needed was a football um, and that was it. And, and to be honest, it wasn't just football, it was anything. So I remember asking for cricket sets and anything, tennis balls and whatever we could get our hands on. And if we didn't have anything physical to play with, we'd always play or make up some type of game. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the, for the most part, it was, especially as we got to like the age of like 10, 11, 12, it was generally football that we, we decided to kind of just focus on. Indirectly, it wasn't with an aim of being a professional footballer or anything like that. We just wanted to play. Uh, and I can remember getting up like early hours of the morning, sometimes like seven, eight, and literally going out and like it could just be a bunch of us just playing. And sometimes if they weren't playing, I'd be uh, available and playing on my own. Um, I just wanted to, to get out of the house and just be, be active. And obviously at that time, you didn't really, you didn't really realize what you were doing. It was just a case of, right, I've had my breakfast. Now what? go out and play with my friends and it would be one of them where sometimes my parents would have to come out and like get me in for like food and whatever else just because they hadn't seen me for ages so uh, yeah but in uh, that essentially that was me uh, really really enjoyed 
obviously my, my upbringing and just lucky enough, like I said, we had a good group of friends who I'm, some of them I'm still in contact with now uh, on social media because I don't really get to see them much face to face. But yeah, just we just played football. Um, and, and like I said, I was looking, to be honest, I had older brothers and sisters a lot older than me. And um, a couple of my brothers were playing football uh, for like local Sunday league teams. And um, so I think that was an indirect kind of uh, avenue for me, uh, seeing them getting prepared like on a, uh, Sunday or, or a Saturday sometimes and again it was just the intrigue of obviously seeing them like preparing their boots and their bag and whatever else and yeah so that was I think that was kind of it really but I'd probably say I may, may have got into it more seriously at around like 11, 12 where I thought okay I've maybe got a chance of doing something but again even at that age I wasn't really thinking this is kind of definitely what I want to do because I didn't really have a clue to be honest. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, sounds like um, every every boy when they were growing up, as soon as the like you say, the sun come up outside with football. So um, yeah. Well, when you were growing up, who were your footballing heroes? I didn't really have footballing heroes and like posters on the walls and things like that. But to narrow it down, I mean, I did have people who I admired as as footballers. I didn't. I wasn't one of those who I'd look at someone and say, "I want to be them." And I've never really be someone. I've never really been someone who's kind of starstruck. Um, yeah. But the ones I used to look up to were kind of anyone with a bit of flair, a bit about them. So people like Ian Wright, Andy Cole, Peter Bursley. Uh, sorry, Peter Beardsley. Um, who else? Uh, kind of Les Ferdinand, Ryan Giggs. Just the, the players that would like get you off your seat, so to speak, um, like Paul Gascoigne. So those types of players. Um, and then as I got older and I started playing on the wing, it was more so focused on like the wingers. So like I said, Ryan Giggs, uh, even people like Lee Sharp, um, anyone of that type of ilk really. Uh, obviously, the natural Ronaldinho's and all that there, but obviously anyone's kind of uh, person to look, look up to when it comes to aspiring footballers. But yeah, for me, it was those types of players who kind of, added a bit of extra uh, to, to the game. Yeah, excellent. Um, who influenced you most during your childhood playing days? Was it like a parent, for example, or, or a coach? It would always be family for me. Uh, and I've said this many, many times. So, yeah, so like I said, I'm the youngest of seven. So four two sisters and they're a lot older than me. So I never really had the the sibling rivalry or the, the fights and stuff, just because they were way older than me. Um, so it was always a case of looking up to them. And like in my house, it was always about manners and respect. So luckily for me, in inverted commas, I say luckily, my parents didn't know anything about football. So um, it was always about kind of just being down to her, down to work, being humble, manners and respect. And they would always back me with whatever I wanted to do, but they would never push me. Uh, to the point where I, I kind of felt pressured or anything like that. Um, so I'd always look up to my parents. Uh, they were a massive influence uh, and also my brothers and sisters as well. I didn't really have any uh, coaches or anything like that who were massive influences or people I would look up to, obviously respect and whatever else. And there were naturally coaches that I got on better with on and off the field than others. And, and that's just natural in life. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on that a bit later on anyway. Yeah. But yeah. 
to answer your question in short, yeah, mainly family, so brothers and sisters and, and my parents. Brilliant. Um, I think it was around 1995 and um, you attended Lillyshaw National School for Footballers. Um, how, how did you get the gig there? So, essentially, I was, at that time, I was playing for Nottingham Forest. So, this is way before the academy system. It was basically the old YTS. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, at the age of, I'm inclined to say around 13, early 14. I'd probably say back end 13, there or thereabouts. Um, all the clubs across the UK, they were basically uh, invited to submit their best two or three players uh, to attend Charles Lillyshaw. Now, before you even get to set foot on Lillyshaw, you have to go to various trials before that. So I'd probably say the trials went on for about a year. Um, and what, what happened initially, you'd have your trials for um, your kind of local area, so Warwickshire for me. Uh, and then once you got through that stage, I think there's maybe two or three stages there. It then widen to like the Midlands, so initially county, then Midlands, and then like national, and kind of when it gets to the national stage, that's when it's kind of a bit more serious because you've got players coming from like all over uh, England, so Newcastle, London, and other parts of the Midlands, and, and everywhere in between. Um, but even at that stage, there's still kind of, I'd probably say 60 to, 60 to 80 players there or thereabouts who um, are kind of vying for the position uh, in the squad to join the FA National School, uh, Lillyshaw. Um, so I managed to get through to the final stages. Uh, so the final stages are held at uh, the FA National School in Shropshire. So you, you actually you go there and we actually stayed there for I think it was about three or four days. Um, and so the squad essentially is 16, 17. That's the final squad. And I remember the last the last trial, as I mentioned, at Lillyshaw for three or four days, there was about maybe 40 players there, there or thereabouts. It was a long time ago, so I can't quite remember the exact numbers. Um, but yeah, quite intense, but really enjoyable, because even at that age, you're still kind of thinking, well, I'm here, I'm doing something, I've got a chance of kind of getting to Lillyshaw. And, and Lillyshaw was, I'd like to say, the be-all and end-all. You're kind of representing your country. You're going to be selected as one of the best 16 at that age. So you're bored at Lillyshaw from... 14 to 16. So he's still very young, obviously not developed by any means, although some of the players who I was with, who we'll touch on in a bit, were really developed. Um, but yeah, I managed to get in, managed to do really well through, throughout the, the whole duration of uh, trials, to be honest. And I used to be a striker, so I used to play up front, uh, very, very small, very, very slight. So I wasn't even one of those players who was small and stocky. I was small and very, very slight, and I still am now 5'7", uh, 5'8". Um, and still very, very, very slight. But if you can imagine then, so I would have been probably about four foot five or something crazy like that. Um, but I was really, really fast. And I never really came up against anyone who I think, oh, well, you're massive, um, so I'm inferior. It, I was always used to playing against bigger players, and I'm going back to kind of playing in the park uh, where I grew up and stuff like that. So I was used to getting kicked and whatever else. And luckily for me, I, I was one of those who could just take a good kick in if that makes sense and I, yeah. I remember like going on a bit later in my career uh, I remember coaches saying oh stay down stay down we can win a free kick and obviously get a player booked and that but I always wanted to show how strong I was so yeah. I always bounce but anyway um, yeah managed to get into Lily Shaw and 
it's just a really, really good experience for me. Uh, probably um, just look back fondly, fondly on my two years spent there. Obviously ups and downs because you're naturally going to get homesick and stuff like that. But um, yeah, for me, in terms of like the level of coaching, facilities, and yeah, the, the standard that was there, it's just a different level of uh, level of play, to be honest. Yeah, that's a great insight. Um, well, during your time there, you trained and probably played with um, former England and international and um, former Cherries boss um, Scott Parker. Um, yeah. What can you remember of him back then? Really, really nice guy. So Scott Parker did a, a, an advert for McDonald's, and I think it was like as part of the, the World Cup. You know, you have various adverts. Yeah. Yeah. So it was McDonald's advert, and I don't know if you can remember. I'm not sure how old you are, but he was doing kickups in the back garden. So I was aware of Scott Parker from before I even started Lillyshaw Trials, just because it was like, who's this kid? How did he get that gig? Uh, yeah. And obviously there was there was rumours about him being like a good footballer as well. Um, and then obviously when he was there, just a genuine guy. We're all the same. Like we're all kind of very like naive. Obviously you're only 14, uh, so you're obviously not mature. And everyone's kind of um, a bit apprehensive. Obviously everyone's got different characters, and I'll touch on those again a bit later on. But mm-hmm. he was always very, very nice, very respectful comes across just like how he does now on, on screen. He's very, very studious. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are very, very good players in our team, but he was, he was probably like one of the best in the team. Uh, yeah, you could see like he was one of those that I looked at and thought he's got a really good chance of making it. And I knew because he was at Charlton at the time, it was a club that would potentially give him a chance. And yeah. I knew that he was well regarded there as well. So I knew that they would like push him in the right direction in order to get him into the first team. But yeah, Scotty P was a top-class player, a top-class person. Uh, to be honest, everyone else was there as well. I mean, Scott Parker was one that made it um, to a very high level and played uh, for the full England team. But so did Francis Jeffers, who was there as well, and also Alan Smith. Fortunately for Alan Smith, he actually left. Um, he was homesick, so essentially he just left and, and went back and then he carried on playing uh, for Leeds and then obviously he broke into the Leeds team really, really young with that special Leeds team that was kind of littered with people like Harry Kewell and, and all those guys, Woodgate. Um, but yeah, so that just shows you the level of standard that was uh, attending the FA National School. And there were a load of other players that at the time you looked at and you thought, yeah, you, you're definitely going to make it. And, and for whatever reason, they, they didn't. Um, and again, it all depends really on how you develop um, and also whether you get given a chance because everyone needs a chance and also what club you're at because some players are at Man United and we all know Man United is just amazing team, amazing squad. Um, but yeah, that was my year and then the year above me when we initially joined, we had, uh, it was first and second year, so we were the first years and the year above me was Michael Owen, Wes Brown and Michael Ford who played for, for Everton. Kenny Lund, who played for Shuffle Wednesday. And then when they left, we became the seniors. And then the year group that joined, uh, they became the juniors. And in that year was Joe Cole. So again, ridiculous talent. Yeah. Um, and there who made it, um, when I say made it, had a, a career in the game. And then when we left, they became the seniors. And the year that joined them, it was uh, Jermaine Defoe and Leon Knight. So ah. the caliber of player was... Uh, yeah, it was really, really high. And obviously, Lily Shaw at that point had been around uh, doing that type of thing for many, many years. So people like Sol Campbell, Nicky Barnby, 
uh, Trevor Sinclair, they all attended as well. Uh, Jamie Carragher, they all attended the FA National School. So it was, uh, whilst it didn't guarantee you uh, a position uh, as a professional footballer, it, it kind of gave you a good starting point, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um if we uh, fast forward to, I believe it was 1998, um, and you signed for Leicester City. How did that materialise? Yeah, um, it's a bit of a weird one. Uh, and sometimes I look back and think, like, not what was I doing, but it was a case of, like, I was very, very brave. I've always been one who's been really, really independent. And sometimes I think I need to, like, reach out more. Um, but essentially, long story short, I, like I said, I was at Nottingham Forest. So... I was offered an, uh, a YTS. I was going to say apprentice, but it's changed now. It, it used to be YTS, so yeah. let's call it what it is. So I was offered that really, really uh, like early. So at the age of, what, 13, I'd say, I knew that I was going to be offered a YTS at Forest. So, yeah, you were you were allowed to sign a contract, but you weren't allowed to have like professional wages, if that makes sense. You had to still have – it's stipulated that you still need to have I think £42.50 or whatever it was, the standard YTS. And your pro wages, once you hit a certain age, I think it was 15, 16 or whatever, then it would get updated to you. So essentially, uh, I started my YTS at Nottingham Forest. And after being there for, what, two, maybe three years prior to that and being one of the ones who was, like, really well-regarded and was seen as not the next best thing, but I was, I was up there in terms of, like the, the players in my team, I was like one of the, the ones who's seen as like a, a decent prospect. And then I joined, I started my YTS um, and there was just a change uh, with staff members. So I remember Paul Hart joining and Paul Hart came with um, a good reputation. He had just won, I think, the, the Youth Cup with Leeds and obviously like Leeds had um, people like, uh, like I said, Alan Smith, Woodgate and all those amazing players so he came with a high reputation but with that uh, came a lot of changes and a lot of players were brought in from uh, like Ireland and other parts of England like other teams and stuff so we ended up having like an A and a B team and a U team uh, and I was injured at the time so my last few months at Lillyshaw I had a hairline fracture in my back and that was due to uh, like growth and things like that so I had to sit the last like few I think it was a few months I think I'm inclined to think um, of my Lillyshaw um, tenure, just sitting on the sidelines. I wasn't allowed to do anything. Uh, so when I started at Nottingham Forest, I missed pre-season. And that was obviously the first ever pre-season I, I, I had done or was supposed to do at that point. Um, so it was very difficult because I was injured. And then when I did manage to um, get me all clear to train, I was playing catch-up. And like I said, I just looked around literally every day and I was thinking, there's so many players so an A and a B team in the U team, and then there was a reserve team that had just a massive squad. And then you had to get past the reserve team. There was a pool of players who were sitting around who were in between reserves and the first team. And then there was the first team. Mm -hmm. And I had high ambitions. I was thinking, I've just left Lillyshaw, high pedigree, and I, I want to be playing. And in those days, if you weren't in and around the first team at 18 or 19, it was like time to move on. Now, whilst I was still very, very early into my YTS kind of youth team, uh, like tenure, I just thought, like, do I stay here and stick it out? And there was a bunch of things that were going on where players who I played with 
prior to joining uh, and starting my YTS were, were getting released. And I was thinking, like, what what is going on? Like, why are people getting released, like, randomly? And they've been, been off the contracts, like, ages ago. Um, and like I said, there was an influx of players as well. And, again, this is nothing against Paul Hart. He was a good coach and he's gone on to do great things. But I had to look after myself. And I was thinking, okay, well, I can't really see myself being given an opportunity here. Um, I played a few games. I was well below par to my standards anyway, just because I was playing catch-up and we had some good players as well. Um, so I just I looked at it and thought, is it worthwhile maybe going elsewhere and, and like playing my trade? Um, so essentially I did that. I remember getting called into the office um, and this is after a bunch of players have been released and it was Paul Hart and I think Steve Wigley uh, was yeah. just, at that point. I think he was in the room as well. Uh, and essentially they just said to me, look, you know you've been injured, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think we're going to like look at reviewing your contract. So I didn't really know how to take that because at the time, like I said, I was like 16. So I, I didn't really know, I didn't really like know what that meant. Uh, but I knew it wasn't going to be kind of anything positive, if that makes sense. And I had a three-year contract as well. So I just looked at that and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's an opportunity for me to kind of just find a trade elsewhere. So not long after that, I went in and I just spoke to management. Uh, I just said, look, I think I'm just going to look to leave. And they were a bit taken aback because I had three years left in my contract. And I was like, look, to be honest, I don't really care. Like, I just want to go and play football. Uh, and I want to kind of enjoy enjoy myself. So uh, they, they were happy. And for me, I wanted to do that because I knew that, uh, obviously, I, I had my reasons regarding playing. But I knew that because they'd released a handful of players already, I didn't want it to get to a stage where they release more. And then if I was to go in and ask the question, they said no. So I wanted to like just get it done sooner rather than later. And I didn't tell anyone I was going to do it. I was living in digs around the corner from uh, the stadium. Uh, and I just remember going in, like I said, asking a question. They said, OK. And I think literally within a couple of days, uh, I was signing my, my release forms in the office. Uh, and then I remember just walking back to the digs, packing my stuff and then got the train home. I didn't even tell my parents. I think I may have told my brother who, the, my brother basically, long story short, he was the one that used to always ferry me around to, to training and to games and stuff. So he was the one that kind of always, I always spoke to about football and things like that. And obviously moving forward throughout my career, we obviously continued that relationship. I remember just, I think I just told him and I just said, this is the reason why. And he, he was again, probably a bit taken aback, but he just said, look, do what you need to do and obviously it's a lot easier when you haven't got any dependents I didn't have any outgoings in terms of expenditure I didn't even have a mobile phone so it was just a case of just going and find another club so bear in mind this is what 1998 so no social media literally nothing no mobile phone so it's a yellow pages uh, and I've always been proactive so and I knew my pedigree was still quite high at that point because I've been to Lillyshaw so um, my parents were on holiday at the time, I think, as well. So I went home um, and one of my brothers was still living at home then as well. So it was just me and him in the house. And I just remember spending kind of uh, my time over the next few weeks just looking in the yellow pages and literally looking for, OK, where's Derby County in here? Where's Coventry City? And literally sometimes it would just have uh, the reception phone number or the training ground phone number. And I would just call and say, look, my name's blah, blah, blah. 
reiterate that I haven't been released because back in the day, if you've been released, it's like, okay, well, you've either done something wrong disciplinary or you're not good enough. So yeah. my opening gambit was always, I've not been released. I've literally not long uh, graduated from the FA National School. Um, I've left because I, I wanted to leave. It was my own accord. I'm just wondering who to speak to with regards to uh, maybe coming on trial there. So that was literally the conversations I was having. And I was quite successful in getting those trials. So Derby County was one, Coventry City, um, Stoke City, Man City. I went to all of those. And whilst I was going to those, I was getting fitter and fitter. Um, So it was one of those where once I got to the stage of like the fifth club, which I believe was Leicester, I remember thinking to myself, look, Leicester's in the Midlands, seems like a good club to join, family-orientated. I don't really want to drop down the leagues. I didn't want to go to, like, say, other teams uh, in the vicinity, like maybe No Disrespect Warsaw or other clubs like that, purely because in those days, the standard was different. And they were looking for, they're, they're not looking for players like me, 5'7". They're looking for, like, six foot six foot five like big defenders big players who are like very athletic and very strong physically and stuff because back in those days the lower leagues were it wasn't like it is uh, now um, but essentially that my train of thought was okay well I do need to find a club like ASAP and I think I was on trial for around six seven maybe eight weeks uh, and like I said each trial I was getting fitter and fitter and more confident got to Leicester and it just felt right I remember the coach coming to pick me up from the house. Um, he'd travel down in the morning, pick me up, and then took me to the training ground. And, and I was allowed to stay in the digs for maybe a week or two. And after the first couple of days, it just felt right. Um, everyone was welcoming, and I just fit in. I remember doing quite well there. And luckily for me, the coaches were quite familiar with me as well. Um, I wasn't familiar with them, but they'd obviously heard about me on the grapevine and whatever else. So, yeah, they offered me a deal. They offered me a two-year deal. Um, yeah, I think it was a two-year deal, and um, I just settled in really, really well, uh, and then forged a, uh, a place in the, the youth team, a uh, starting place in the youth team, and then it just went from there, really, so yeah. Ah, right, okay. Um, what memories have you got of being at Filbert Street? Any any real ones that really stand out for you? Obviously, the, my debut, that's uh, yeah. going to be naturally one. Um, so that was in December 1999. So, yeah, just, I just, I mean, that was just an amazing experience for me. And I, I did, I did actually want to make my debut. Uh, I wanted to be in and around the first team at the age of 18. Uh, and I remember saying it on camera as well. So I actually put it out there. Um, so what I mean by that is there was a TV show called The World at Bare Feet, which uh, basically it was a Channel 4 documentary and they actually started filming us when we were at Lily Shaw um, and it came out I think I think either whilst we were at Lily Shaw or not too long after graduating um, and then they did a follow-up show so they wanted to see what everyone's doing obviously now they're at their clubs and stuff so they came to the Leicester City training ground and it was just a bit weird because I was only what 16 um, hadn't done anything in the game and I've got these cameras following me around so again that was a good experience um, but they interviewed me at the digs, remember, in the back garden. And similar to this, and it was just kind of questions about how you're getting on and whatever. And I remember saying that I want to be kind of in and around the first team at 18. And at that point, I was nowhere near the first team, so I had no right to say that at all. Uh, but naturally, I had that belief in myself. Um, and 
yeah, I managed to make my debut. And like I said, back in those days, if you weren't around in the first team, 18, 19, it was time to move on. Um, and that was just literally everyone's train of thought. Um, it's not like nowadays where you get like an extended period, see players breaking through at like 22, 23. It was different back in those days. Um, so, yeah, for me, again, Philbert Street, making my debut against Newcastle, that was massive. Um, it was a night game as well, I believe. Yeah, sure, it was a night game as well. So, again, night games are always a bit more, they've got that little bit extra uh, as well yeah. sometimes. Um, but, yeah, and again, just being offered the, the, the initial contract at Leicester as well, that was a massive thing for me. Um, there were other good times as well. Uh, we, we had a decent youth team. Uh, and a decent reserve team as well. So our reserve games were, um, they weren't like your regular reserve game. We had quite a big crowd because we had a thing, like a family, I think it was called like a family night or something where I think kids got in free and I think it may have been like a pound for like adults or whatever. So we had one side of the stadium, which is normally full for every reserve game. So that gave us a good experience, a good learning uh, kind of experience um, I think we used to pull in maybe between kind of five to a thousand fans. And I know it doesn't sound a lot, but for a reserve game back in the day, yeah. Yeah. Um, quite a big crowd. Um, but yeah, uh, and again, just working with someone like, like Martin O'Neill, I'll, I'll, I'll always forever hold him in uh, high regard. And whenever I speak about kind of Leicester or, or people ask me about Martin, it's always positive stuff. Just an amazing person, like on and off the pitch, football knowledge, uh, kind of. A lot of empathy, man management. He was a bit, I'd say he was a cross between, from from what I gather, because I've never worked with these managers, but it was a cross between Nigel Clough, who he obviously played under when he was at Nottingham oh, yeah. Forest, and also Alex Ferguson, in the sense oh. that they kind of knew about your family and uh, just knew about you as a person. And it was just, yeah, but you knew that there was a line that you couldn't cross and there was an element of, well, not an element, there was a lot of respect there and you knew, like, obviously when he said something, he meant it. So there was times when he gave me, like, very, very high praise in front of other teammates and it was a bit embarrassing sometimes, but then there was other times where, like, he came he came down on me, my performance wasn't, like, up to scratch. And it was one of those, sometimes you can answer back to certain managers, not in a, not in a, like, an arrogant way or a rude way, yeah. but you voice your opinion, but with him, I just didn't, just because I knew what he was saying was correct. And it, it wasn't one of those where he would only give you negative information or negative vibes. It was always a, a, an even balance. So you knew that, like I said, if he said something positive, he, he meant it. And if he said something that was a bit kind of, you need to kind of look at your ideas kind of thing, you obviously took it on board as well. So, yeah, just uh, I managed to reach out to him on social media probably about a couple of years ago because... I'm new to social media. Um, I only do it now because of my podcast, um, which we'll touch on later on. But I think Martin O'Neill joined after me. And I think he he added me. Um, and then I actually thought, ah, oh, I, I always thought if I ever bump into him, I'm going to like thank him for my debut. Um, but yeah, I never bumped into him. So I just literally reached out to him, sent him a message and just said thank you. And, that. and he, he replied and just said, look, you're a natural talent. So for him to say something like that, it just, it, obviously, it's just really, really refreshing to hear that. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds, sounds amazing. That does, really does. Um, so when you were at Leicester, you obviously played with some talented players like um, Neil Lennon, um, Muzzy Is It, Errol Heskey. Um, 
who was the most talented uh, player in that uh, Leicester squad, in your opinion? Well, it's a bit of a tough one. Um, and people have asked me this before. I know, I like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone naturally, because they've all got their own talents in their own in their own right. But for me, I'm looking at those players, like I said, who had that little bit extra. So, Muzzy is it naturally very skillful, uh, kind of very graceful on the pitch. Um, Emil Heskey, and again, whenever people say, oh, Emil Heskey, like, average and this and that, Especially like when he was playing, like you used to hear him getting abused and stuff. Like, oh, Jesus, thing. you've got no clue at all. Emil Heskey was a different level, and yeah. obviously you don't you don't go from Leicester to Liverpool and also represent your country for that period of time and be an average player. And I think Michael Owen even came out multiple times and said Emil Heskey was the best player uh, or best striker that he he played with. For whatever reason, it could be because naturally he was a natural four. But even so, if Michael Owen's saying that, yeah, it must mean something. So, what is it? Emil Heskey, uh, Robbie Savage, uh, oh, cool. again, he'll probably admit this. Like, people used to say, Oh, he's a hard man, and that he was, yeah, he was never a hard man. Um, he just got into like scrapes and stuff on the pitch, but he was never a hard man. But he had ability, um, he had decent ability, and he was always one for me. He would always come in the dressing room and speak to the young boys, whether it be having banter or just like saying like, oh, like I'm off, like you guys have got a double session, I'm off to like my four bedroom house or whatever. Just little <laughs> things like that. And you knew he was just joking, but he was always someone that would come in the dressing room. And to be honest, that never really happened at Leicester. I mean, like I said, this isn't, isn't anything against Leicester City at that time, but it was just the culture thing back in the day was first team and first team and then the youth team and reserves uh, like separate entities to a, to a certain degree. Um, so sometimes you hear players, especially nowadays, young players and they grow up and they say they've got like mentors, like first teamers who will reach out and tell them how to kind of um, better themselves on and off the pitch. But never really had that um, as a player for myself growing up. Um, but yeah, Robbie Savage was always someone that would come in. Uh, Andy Impey would do the same. He was obviously a really nice guy as well. Uh, Heskey would jump in and, and like say his part as well, come in the dressing room sometime to see how the youth boys were getting on. Because he'd obviously been there and uh, done it in the youth team at Leicester as well and come through the ranks. But yeah, for me, in terms of ability, I'd probably say uh, those three. Uh, there was others that came uh, and obviously did bits as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I was to pick it would be probably those three that had decent ability. Neil Lennon was up there as well. He was more of a leader. Um, obviously, we knew what he could do in terms of passing and dictating on the pitch as well. But yeah, in terms of like flair, Emil Heskey was up there and, and was he as a role. No, oh, excellent. So when your Leicester time came to an end, um, how did the opportunity to sign for AFC Bournemouth come about? Yeah, so that one, so again, I was back in my career at Leicester, I got an injury, I tore my thigh in a reserve game against Tottenham, it was away, and at that point I'd already been in the first team, and I was still kind of in and around the first team at that point, um, very, very frustrating, I was taking a corner, and uh, as I struck the ball, I, I heard a click, and I felt a pain in my thigh, but never really thought anything of it, and I carried on playing, <clears throat> it was towards the end of the first half, and uh I still managed to score a penalty. But as I was taking a penalty, I just knew that my leg just didn't feel right. Came off at half-time and my thigh, my left thigh, again, left-footed, so a bit of a nightmare. It was just all red. 
and it just felt very kind of stiff tender it just didn't feel right and I just knew in my, my heart that this doesn't look good and I remember Steve Walford coming up to me Steve Walford was the first team coach at the time and uh, he just said oh how is it and I just said oh, I, just, I don't know I don't know what it is and at the time the, the physio didn't know what it was either anyway I was out for a while I was injured due to have an operation because there's a load of scar tissue in my thigh and uh, in the end I didn't have a, an operation uh, thankfully because um, the scar tissue managed to uh, kind of disappear to a certain degree. Uh, so I was just advised to rest. So, uh, yeah, just a lot of rest and recuperation and stretching and in the pool and stuff. But, yeah, it was just a bit of a annoying time because obviously you're still young, um, but everyone else is kind of training and playing hard. And their careers are progressing while Shaw's is kind of stalling, but I was still young, so I knew I'd still be able to do a bit. But I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily in the train of thought of, oh, this is the career-ending injury because it was never going to be that. Um, but yeah, and then Martin O'Neill left. So I remember coming back from Singapore. And again, so whilst injured, um, I was asked to still go and kind of play a part in the youth team because uh, I was still, well, I was 18 at the time, so I was still eligible, eligible to play for the youth team. So youth team tournament, it was like a seven-a-side thing, I think, in Singapore. And I, I knew I was kind of injured and I was kind of convinced to go. Um, but yeah, I managed to like play a couple of games and then I just had to end it because I was just injured. I just couldn't play. Um, came back and we were on uh, the coach on the way back to the training ground, uh, just getting ready to pick up our cars and stuff. And I remember hearing on the radio that Martin O'Neill had gone to Celtic and there was no rumours of him kind of thinking about leaving or anything. So for me, that was massive... Uh, purely because I knew that the following season was an opportunity for me to kind of make more of a mark on, on the actual first team and maybe kind of try and uh, cement a place, a more regular place in the, in the first team squad, so to speak. Um, so I remember just hearing that and I'm just thinking, oh, what next? Um, like, what does that look like? And I was thinking, oh, like, is he going to maybe try and like take me to Celtic with him? Or Because he, he really did like me, um, but that never happened. And then... Um, Peter Taylor came in, and to be honest, Peter Taylor had already, I think, had already been England under 21 manager at that point, or in and around uh, the squad. So when, as young boys, when we're kind of, when we caught wind of Peter Taylor coming in, we were like, well, probably going to get a chance because he likes youngsters. He's been around England and 21s and stuff like that. So decent pedigree coming in. Anyway, that didn't happen. Obviously, he's come in, and I was injured, and um, it just didn't work out, and. A load of players came again. He brought in a load of players and stuff, and it didn't really work out for him. And then he ended up leaving. And I think, I think it was then Mickey Adams that came in, and again more players and stuff. And again, I still wasn't, I still didn't see myself as part of the first team squad. I still was down back into the reserves, and I was just very, very frustrated. Like I said, I'd, I'd absolutely like smashed the, the youth team, and I was doing really well in the uh, the reserves as well. And that played so many games and I just thought I don't want to be playing reserve team football for uh, too much longer. Um, long story short, there was kind of a few rumours of a couple of clubs sniffing around and stuff, but I wasn't really thinking about leaving Leicester, but then a couple of things materialised where I just thought it's not going to happen for me here. I remember Mickey Adams just saying that it's not really going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, I kind of had an inkling because there was other players that were like jumping ahead of me and stuff. Um and a few things happened that 
just didn't really sit well with me. Um, but no malice towards like Mickey Adams or Peter Taylor or anything like that. But I just I could foresee that this wasn't going to work out. And I had another year on my contract. Um, again, I just wanted to play, and that throughout my career, that was all it was about. It was never really about the money, um, purely uh, purely because I was never really money orientated anyway. But the salary that I was on throughout my whole career, 15 years in the game, was never big money anyway. For me, it was always I wanted to play, especially when I was younger, just because I wanted to. Uh, put myself in the shop window. You're always in the shop window, as, as you know, when you're playing football anyway. You never know who's watching. So the opportunity came around and, um, you know, I was just told that Bournemouth were interested. Um, didn't really know much about Bournemouth, so I did a bit of research and people were telling me they're a good passing team. And whilst they were in uh, League One at the time and uh, Leicester were in the Premier League, I, I, I never really saw it as a step down because, again, after my Premier League debut and making a couple of appearances off the bench, I've never really featured in the, the first team after that. I was on the bench again for a handful of games, but I wasn't in and around the squad, so I couldn't really call myself like a first-team player. I was just essentially a reserve player. So for me to go to Bournemouth and be offered the opportunity to play first-team football, naturally, that's a massive step up, playing in front of crowds and playing with players that have got kind of bills to pay and every point means something. Um... Obviously, reserve team football, especially those days, it was just you're playing against some first teamers, but they didn't really want to be there, and they're either coming back from injury or whatever. So it was it wasn't really competitive. So yeah, I jumped chance. I knew that it was again. I'd, I'd be living away from home. So again, if if you go back to the initial left home at 14, went to Forest, I was playing uh, in the youth team there, and I was living away from home there, and then going to Leicester, and initially I was in Biggs, and then. Obviously, when I started driving, I was able to kind of drive from Leamington to, to Leicester. So that was a good experience. But then that was short-lived because, again, going to Bournemouth, never going to happen. So I was living in digs at Bournemouth. Um, really, really good experience at Bournemouth. I remember going there and um, just looking at the players, thinking like a lot of them were like my age there or thereabouts, some older and some a bit younger. But the majority of them had played like 40, 50 games in the league. Mm. In terms of ability, whilst we're all maybe on par or whatever, maybe a bit better than them or whatever on paper, but they played uh, league games. So in terms of strength and game understanding, they were ahead of me. I'm coming from the reserve league, which is a lot slower. And like I said, there's nothing riding on it. These guys have kind of been there and done it. So I was always kind of receptive to that. Uh, but yeah, good experience for me. And obviously, didn't really... I knew when we went, oh, sorry, when I went there, they were in a relegation battle and I knew it was going to be difficult. I joined like with about maybe six or seven games left and I think they were like bottom three at the stage. Um, so we ended up getting relegated. But I saw that as well. So it was a disappointment. And obviously at that age as well, I was what, 20, 21-ish. Um, for that to happen and experience that um, at that age, again, the experience was good, bad and also indifferent. But um, I just saw it as a potential opportunity because if we were to, again, drop down to League Two, uh, it's an opportunity for me to maybe get an opportunity in the first team. Um, so, yeah, uh, and that's essentially what happened. And then we got relegated, like I said, League Two, played the majority of the games in that season. And then we got promoted at the first uh, kind of instance, really, through the playoffs. Um, so that was, again, a massive experience as well. And then obviously promoted back into League One and then 
continue to play throughout the season then uh, as well in League One, uh, but not as much as I'd like to. And again, the same scenario, I want to be playing. So it's again, what am I doing? Do I need to be here? Shall I look elsewhere? So, But that was my experience with Bournemouth. Um, and again, that's how it essentially came about, really. Yeah. Um, so while you were at Bournemouth, obviously you worked under Sean O'Driscoll um, and his assistant, Peter Grant. Um, what were they like as a management duo? Uh, they were great. Chalk and cheese. Um, yeah. Long story short, in a nutshell, Sean's really, really quiet. And everyone told me that within the first kind of couple of days of being there. I didn't really understand it because when they said, look, you're not going to be able to hear what he says. I just didn't understand what they were talking about. So I've come from Leicester, Martin O'Neill, very vocal. Um, and obviously everyone else that's there, really, really vocal, backroom stuff and that. And then to hear this, I was thinking, OK, maybe they're just exaggerating. But they weren't. It was literally a case of even if he's got you in a circle, sometimes you have to like lean in to hear what you're saying. You did get used to it. Uh, and that was just his personality. Um, and then Peter Grant, on the other hand, <clears throat> he was the opposite. He was uh, Scottish, so up for the banter and quite loud and stuff. And I think they worked uh, really well together as a result. Um, but, yeah, in terms of football knowledge and understanding, like, different level, I think I think Sean O'Driscoll was ahead of his time. Uh, and if you speak to anyone who's played under him, Mm-hmm. they'll probably uh, kind of second second that as well because yeah. I'm going back to what 2002, 2003 and if you look at it nowadays a lot of teams haven't even got a plan B we had a plan C and it was up to us to dictate how we operated that on the pitch so if we wanted to start the game depending on who we were playing against uh, if we wanted to start in plan A we would do that and Sean gave us the responsibility and authority to change to a plan C or a plan B at whatever stage we wanted to. It was just crazy to, to think like, sometimes I look back and think like, it's just, his foresight was just amazing. Um, and what we used to do as well, we used to watch a video more or less after every game. So normally you'll hear about video nasty where teams play rubbish and the gaffer gets you in. It's like, right, you haven't done X, Y, and Z, right? But we were doing that when we'd win. So we'd win 3-4-0, whatever it would be, and we'd still watch the video. And Sean would say, look, where do you think this goal started from? Why do you think it happened? So like I said, he'd, he'd want you to know why the goals happened. So it's not just a case of, oh, well, the wingers crossed it and then the, the strikers headed it in. It was like, well, no. It started from the centre-half pressing the forward. The forward then panicked, gave the ball away. The left-backs an- anticipated it, tackled passed it to the winger, gone into midfield, gone out to the other side of the pitch, cross goal. That's me simplifying it. But he would go into so much detail. And again, when it came to, oh, we've lost the game and we need to watch the video, it wasn't a case of, oh, it's a video nasty and the gap is just being spiteful or, or just pointing out the negatives. We knew that when we won, we'd still be watching a video. And very meticulous in terms of researching the opposition and knowing how they want to play. But whilst doing that, it was never about them. It was always about us. Um, and like I said, we'd go out and sometimes teams would just get confused because they'd think that we're going to be doing one thing and we'd start completely different. So like I said, we had like Steve Fletcher up front, so big, strong presence. Uh, we also had Warren Feeney, who was like small and fast. And we had players like Eddie Howe and Stephen Purchase uh, in the field and sometimes defence, uh, Brian Stock. Um, 
O'Connor as well. We had loads. Like we, we Wade Elliott on the wing, sometimes myself as well on, on the wing. Um, so it was just a great experience for me. Um, and I, I loved it down there. And I'll probably say, well, I've said it before, like Sean O'Driscoll. Sean O'Driscoll's up there with um, like one of the top managers that I've worked under. Uh, he was the first manager to tell me that um, I need to be more consistent. And at the time, it was quite hard for me to take because I'd only just joined and I was like um, fresh in the team and I had a few games where I did well, but it was one of those where I was still 20-21 and a couple of games I'd play well and maybe get man of the match, but then the next game I'd be like average, then the next game I'd be like poor, and then two games after that I'd be like okay. Um, So he pulled me one day and we were just talking and he just said, look, you just need to be more consistent. And then uh, I took that throughout my whole career because as, as I got older, more wiser, and obviously more uh, game understanding, it, it obviously made sense. Uh, but yeah, for me, great experience, great manager to work under. And obviously uh, he had a great foil in, uh, in his assistant as well. So yeah, good times. Yeah, that's great. Great little insight there. Um, who was you close to in, in that playing squad? And for example, who did you await? Uh, room with on away days um i remember rooming with warren cummins uh, <laughs> a couple of times he's a character you probably know that's probably why you're laughing but yeah, yeah he was a funny, funny character i remember so he joined on loan from i can't remember if he joined on loan chelsea? from chelsea yeah chelsea. Um, but when he joined on loan he'd already been on loan to bournemouth before so he was familiar with the the area and the training ground and the players as well um, but yeah, um, good character, good player. Um, so sometimes it would be him left back and me left wing. Um, so we had a good relationship. Uh, but I remember when it was a playoff final and I was in a room with him. Uh, so I roomed with him on that particular uh, occasion as well. Uh, I remember a couple of times I roomed with Amos for Yewa. Oh, so yeah. So yeah, he was there for a period of time. Uh, he used to play for West Ham. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of like players that I used to kind of chill out with, like Amos was one because I was living in digs with him for a period of time. Uh, Narada Bernard, Chucky yeah. Erevin, uh, Brian Stock, uh, Steve Cook. I don't know if you remember Stephen Cook. He came on loan uh, from Villa. Villa. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Great, great yeah. player. So he attended the FA National School as well. Uh, so he was in Jermaine Defoe's year. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. yeah. What a player he was. But yeah, he, um, yeah, I used to kind of hang out with him and, and uh, yeah, um, Brian Stock as well. Um, but, yeah, it was one of those really, to be honest, I didn't really socialise much because I was still young. So I'm still, still trying to kind of make a name for myself in the game. And, yeah. again, I was living away from home. So I would generally train uh, and then go to the digs uh, and just relax in the digs. And then I'd just go home on days off uh, and after games. Uh, and that was me really. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so out of all your performances for the Cherries, um, which ones really stand out for you? Um, there was one, and I want to. So, long story short, I've got like a bunch of goals that I've scored, and they're on YouTube. Uh, and there's one goal that I can't get hold of, and it was a cup game, and I can't remember for the life of me who it was against. I think it may have been against Brentford or, or Brighton. And I remember it being a night game. And I remember 
the ball's gone in the air and it's gone to Steve Fletcher and I've just anticipated him flicking it on and he's flicked it on I've ran past the defender I think he's bounced and as it's bounced and gone in the air I took both feet off the floor and like volleyed it uh, I don't know why I was shooting from that distance but it's just gone in and it's just smashed the back of the net without like hitting the floor um, so that was one game that I was really really fond of I played really well in that game uh, I just remember like just when I scored that goal, it was like I had like an out-of-body experience. It was just crazy. Um, so that was good. Um, there were a couple of other games as well. I didn't really score many goals for, for Bournemouth. Um, but yeah, I, I did have a few good games uh, for them. I can't really remember like against who or, or kind of at what period. But yeah, um, if I was to choose one, that would be one. Because that, that goal sticks in my mind. Uh, someone must have the foot. I do know that. There is a, back in the day, so there's a DVD, I can't remember what it was called, but I remember watching it on the way to the playoff final. So they put like a montage together of like goals and great games that we played and that goals was on the DVD. Um, so I don't know if there's anyone out there listening, uh, whenever they get a chance, if they can obviously get hold of that, that DVD or that goal somehow and maybe send it to you, that'd be great. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, I do remember having a few decent uh, games. And like I said, it was just, we had a good team as well. It was a good learning curve for me. I think it was a good team to join at that period of my career anyway. Yeah, excellent. Um, so we just touched on the playoff final a little bit. Um, obviously, it's 20 years now since that um, playoff final at Cardiff. Mm. Um, you were on the bench that day, if I remember rightly. Um, what memories do you have from the Cardiff final? Um, just yeah, it was amazing. Again, great experience. Um, it's a great stadium. It just I was just annoyed because I wanted to start the game, uh, or at least get more game time. I think I only came on for like the last couple of minutes, and it was just it was a frustrating season in a way for me because off the back of um, well, during that season I played a lot of games, so obviously off the back of that I wanted to kind of play that, that game as well um, because I played a major part in that season uh, but it, it wasn't to be but that didn't deter from the fact that we had like a great great night I remember we got the coach back to Bournemouth got dropped off in the city centre directly outside of the nightclub and then we all walked off in our like suits and that into the club um, and it was just that was just great for me um, just because it was just a great day and I always say now the playoffs are only good if you get to the final and win it. Because imagine you yeah. go through an extended period of the season, what, three weeks or there, thereabouts, and you get mm -hmm. to the final, it must be horrible. So, yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Um, but like I said, the following season, didn't really play as many games as I wanted to. We stepped up to League One. There was a bit of a difference in terms of standard in League One than there was in League Two. Um, but I still thought I could hold my own, which I did. But it's just unfortunate just because I didn't really get much game time. I still played, uh, but just not as much game time as I wanted to. Um, like I said, my, my kids are playing for me, so I always wanted to play. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, obviously, we had game time restricted um, at Dean Court. Um, you moved on to Boston United, I believe. Is that right? Boston next? Yeah. Yeah, correct. So that was a bit of a random one. I, to be honest, I didn't even, I've never even heard of Boston. Um, so again, it was a situation where I knew that. So Bournemouth wanted me to stay. They actually offered me another year. And I just thought, okay, well, 
do I stay and have the same circumstance where I'm going to be like in and out of the team? I need to be playing now. Like I'm 21, 22. I want to be playing week in, week out. Whilst not being guaranteed, but I want to know that I've got a chance of like playing every week. So I'd actually gone on trial to Knox County um, because I wanted to be in and around the Midlands again. Um, so Knox County went there. It's just a bit of a random one. Again, it was just turn up, play a game with players that you don't know and hope, hopefully do well. Looking back, it was just crazy because it's like hit and miss. It's like finger in the air time. Like, are you going to play well or not? Like, you're playing with a bunch of players who are all on trial. It's just very, very difficult. Um, so I remember playing the game and just thinking, this is just horrible. Like, I'm not even getting, not even getting the ball. No one's passing to me. It's just not really going to work. So I remember like playing and thinking, they're not going to offer me anything, uh, off the back of this. At best, they're probably going to say, maybe come back next week for a week's worth of training or whatever. Like, I don't even know if I would have done that based on the fact. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Picture the scene, all of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. I was, I was still at Bournemouth anyway. But during that game, I think um, Steve Evans and uh, his assistant uh, were there. They were watching the game. I don't know what they saw. Maybe they didn't take uh, information from that game based on my performance, but maybe off like previous performances that they'd seen me playing, uh, games that they'd seen me playing. And uh, they basically approached Bournemouth, I believe. And I think Sean just said, "Look, Bournemouth were interested." So it all happened really, really fast. Um, I think over a couple of days, where I was liaising with um, Bournemouth and also Boston with regards to ending my contract at Bournemouth and obviously signing a new one at Boston. So, yeah, literally happened. Again, Boston, Lincolnshire, so, again, miles from home. But I was a bit older then, um, and I knew that there was an opportunity for me to maybe just drive in with a bunch of other boys uh, and maybe before games just stay in a hotel in Bournemouth. So um, I actually had that opportunity, and that was written in my contract, but I never really took advantage of it uh, just because the travel situation was working okay for me. Uh, it wasn't affecting my training. It wasn't affecting my, my gameplay or anything like that. So I did that. Um, again, signed within a couple of days. And then I think one or two, I think I had one training session, which was an indoor session, I believe. Um, and then I think that was on the Friday. And then on the Saturday, we had a game. It was a home game. Um, played really well. I think I got man in the match and scored a free kick. Randomly scored a free kick because I've never scored one before, apart from in a reserve game at Bournemouth. Um, so yeah, scored a free kick, did really well, enjoyed it. And then I think the following game was against Barry away, I think. And I think I scored two in that game. So I had a really good start at Bournemouth. And again, a bit different. I mean, the standard I was used to, because like I said, I'd already played in uh, League 2 at Bournemouth. 
Um, and it wasn't a big difference from League 2 and League 1 at that point anyway. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really, whilst on paper, it was a step down. Again, it was still me kind of taking another step towards trying to achieve a career in, in the game, really. So I spent a couple of years there under Steve Evans, slightly different, well, a lot different to his like management style. Steve Evans was different to Sean O'Driscoll. Um, but yeah, um, had some decent players. We had Lee Canigal, who attended the FA National School with me. He was at Arsenal uh, as a youth player. Um, and we also had David Noble, who was the year below me at the FA National School as well. Uh, and again, he was an Arsenal player. I believe he played for West Ham as well. And we also had Chris Holland. Chris Holland uh, also attended the FA National School as well. And he, way back in the day, he got signed for, I think, a million pounds by Birmingham City. So he, again, we had him in midfield. Um, and we also had, like, Jason Lee, who, obviously, you know Jason Lee, who played uh, for Nottingham Forest uh, back in the day as well. So... We had good players. We had uh, Julian Jochin as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so we had a good squad and a lot of players who had been there for many, many years. So they knew about the, the squad and the team and, and, and obviously what the gaffer wanted. So we had a good mix, young and old. Um, yeah, decent time there. But again, it was a situation where they offered me another year. Um, I had an inkling that there were other clubs kind of maybe interested in me. And I just thought I wanted to maybe find a trade elsewhere so I had two years there and then went elsewhere after that really so so yeah yeah so after then I believe believe if my research is correct you um had a couple of trial spells I believe Grimsby Town might have been one of them um and then you signed non-contract terms with Shrewsbury yeah crazy time so just to go back to what I said there was a couple of clubs that were kind of interested and that didn't materialise uh, and as you know, this, this happens in football. People say they're interested, and then it, it's just not. It doesn't. It's not what it what it seems on the tin, if that makes sense. So, long story short, those clubs didn't materialise for me, and then I just ended up speaking to or trying to kind of get a contract. I was always, like I said, proactive. So whilst I did have an agent, I never signed a contract with any agent throughout my whole career. So I didn't really rely on any agent to do the dirty work for me. I was always willing to pick up the phone and either speak to a teammate at another club who maybe be able to put me in touch with the coach or just call the coach directly or call the manager directly. So I did that throughout my career when the time was right. So again, off the back of me finding out that the clubs who were supposedly interested were no longer interested, it was a case of, okay, well, I need to now find the club. Um, and at that point in time, I had invested in a property uh, in Leamington. So bit different to when I was at Nottingham Forest and left. Um, I had now responsibility, I had a mortgage and things like that. So it was just a bit of a rubbish situation for me. And I remember like going through that whole summer unable to kind of really be able to enjoy it um, just because I didn't have a club. Uh, and that was my main focus. So it was a case of speaking to all these managers and coaches, nothing really materialised. And then um, I remember pre-season starting, I just remember obviously on TV, you see the players going and training and stuff, and I was like, okay, uh, we're only a week in, still got time. And then before you know it, it's like two, three, four weeks in, five weeks in, and I'm not training at this point. Uh, there's only so much you can do on your own. So, um, yeah, it was just difficult times. I do remember I did train with Coventry City towards the back end of my former, sorry, Boston career. 
um, because Mickey Adams was there at the time, um, and Seamus McDonough was there, who was the goalkeeper coach. Uh, he used to be goalkeeper coach at Leicester. So there was a couple of familiar faces, and I remember speaking to Mickey Adams. I spoke to, um, oh, I can't remember his first name, but his surname is Heath. Uh, he's like a youth team player. When I was at Leicester, he was a youth team player a year below me. Uh, and he was uh, in the first team at Coventry City. So I remember speaking to him and he said, oh, yeah, I'll put you in touch with a gaffer. And I managed to go there and train and did that towards the back end. And I uh, did that during that kind of uh, off-season period as well. Uh, but, yeah, obviously nothing materialised there. I did play one reserve game and got an assistant stuff, but there was no chance of me signing there. Obviously, they were in the championship at that point. Um, but, yeah, I was just ringing around club, like I said, and it was just very, very difficult, and pre-season had started and almost finished, and then Grimsby came about, and, again, miles away from home, went on trial. Uh, again, I wasn't fit. Uh, nothing really happened. And in my mind, I was thinking, it's just way too far from home. There's got to be clubs nearer to home that will give me an opportunity. And like I said, again, from there, I went to other clubs as well. Um, and Shrewsbury Town, they offered me non-contract terms. Wasn't ideal because non-contract terms basically leaves you in limbo. So if you get injured, the club's not obliged to do anything about it. Um, not really. I mean, you're not getting paid. Um, you're just paying for free. So whilst I was in the shop window, I'm obviously at risk because I could get injured at any point. Um, and it was just a bit of a frustrating situation for me because you're obviously playing, but you're not getting paid. So whilst I was there, um, I trained for a few weeks and then I played a few games, uh, managed to get myself fit. Um, and then Hereford came about. So Hereford, a guy called Rob Purdy, um, and he used to be in the youth team a couple of years below me when I was at uh, Leicester. And he was playing there, so I got in touch with him and he said, yeah, speak to the, the coach and um, see what we can do. And then managed to go down. So I went down and again, I knew straight away off the bat, they, they already said, look, there's no money here. Um, which basically they're saying to you, if we do sign you, you're not going to be on, you're going to basically be on peanuts. I didn't really care. I just wanted to, again, put myself in the shop window, get fit, play games and, and try and <laughs> do well again. So again, signing and contract terms, I managed to play, I believe, the last... 14 or 15 games of their season. Uh, my first game scored, got man of the match, and I just stayed in the team after that point, and I did quite well. Um, there came a point where I had to go in and say, look, I'm, I'm playing now. You need to kind of give me something financially. Mm. So yeah. they did They did give me some money. It wasn't great. It was just literally petrol money. Um, initially, it was petrol money, and then I was on a salary after that. But the salary was wasn't even covering the bills, to be honest. It was just crazy times. But at the time, again, whilst I did have a mortgage, I've got no dependence. It's just kind of me fending for myself. So I could take the hit to, to a point. Uh, I used it as an opportunity to get myself in the shop window. And uh, again, it was one of those where uh, it came towards the end of the season and uh, they did want me to stay. Uh, but there was an opportunity to join Macclesfield. And at that time, um, Paul Lintz was the manager. So for me, it was like, okay, well, Paul Lintz wants to sign me. Like, I'm not I'm not calling the club to ask them for a trial or to ask them to sign me or anything. They actually approached me or they approached my agent um, and he informed me that they wanted to sign me. So I was like, okay, well, 
an opportunity to play under Paul Ince, uh, again in League Two. Great. And I remember getting the call, I was on holiday in Keo Coco, which is an island off Cuba. And I remember getting the call and I was like, wow, I'm on holiday and I've got a call to say a club wants to sign me. Brilliant. So happy days. So yeah, when it was uh, me and Francis Green. So Francis Green came on loan to Boston United um, when I was there. So again, it was even better because I was joining a club that um, I wasn't really familiar with, but in the league. So they're in League Two, playing under Paul Ince, great experience, and also going and signing with a player who I'd already played with. So it was all kind of all kind of great at that particular time. But then I signed, and this was off the off-season, so I signed in the off-season, which was great. And then I could go home, enjoy the rest of the, the kind of off-season. Looking forward to the season, brilliant. And then um, I think it was a day or two after I'd signed, like, Paul Ince left. <laughs> he left the <laughs> He left and went to MK Dons. And oh. I was just like, oh. So I was in that situation where it was like, um, okay, well, at least I've got a club, but oh, like Paul Ince is gone. Um, and it was a weird one because Paul Ince was like um, familiar with my agent at the time. And basically what Paul Ince wanted to do was sign myself, Francis Green, and a guy called Mark Wright. Mark Wright was a right winger uh, who I think at the time – I think he played for Warsaw, I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, Paul Ince left, went to MK Dons. Mark Wright was supposed to sign for Macclesfield, but he couldn't make it because he was on holiday. So he was due to sign when he was like coming back from holiday. In the end, he went and signed for MK Dons, which were in the new oh, yeah. was oh. So in my head, I was thinking, whilst I'm happy to get Macclesfield and my contract's all sorted, if I if I'm maybe on holiday or not able to sign on that particular day, and Paul Ince probably had an inkling that he was leaving and going to MK Dons, maybe he would have took me there. But that's hindsight. You never know. And yeah. again, I was just grateful to have an opportunity at uh, Macclesfield and again have great times there and um, worked under a great management team there as well. And uh, yeah, really really uh, good experience there. And I played some decent football. We had a great footballing team as well. Um, so yeah, really good experience for me. Um, who who took over from Paul Ince there? Uh, Ian Brightwell. So Ian Brightwell was already there. And so right. Ian Brightwell used to play for Coventry City and Man City. Yeah, I know the and name, yeah. Assistant, yeah, his assistant was Asa Hartford, uh, who played for Scotland and also Man City. Uh, and then, yeah, so that for me, I was like, okay, brilliant. These guys know football. And they actually want to play football. They actually wanted to get it down and, and play. And that wasn't that wasn't a, like a, a popular thing in League Two back in those days. You're talking like what 06, 07. Uh, so it was very much uh, a league where a lot of teams would like just kick and run, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's changed a lot now, uh, but we were one of those teams that didn't do that. We wanted to play from the back, and a lot of the time it didn't work for us. So we would be going into games and dominate games, but then we'd concede a late goal and it happened quite often. And often we'd end up like dropping three points and getting one point or, or none at all. So whilst we were playing really good football and a lot of teams, when we'd go away, and a lot of the managers would come into our dressing room and say, look, you guys are like the best team that have been here this season or over the last few years. So for them to do that, that shows you the level of like football that we were playing. I really enjoyed it, and like those like 
Ian Brightwell and uh, and Asa Hartwood, like they they love me as a player. And it was just I just when I was one of those that I always I didn't need an arm around me, but I needed to know that the managers believed in me and allowed me to play not well off the cuff for want of a better phrase. So whilst I had a game understanding and I would always kind of do what the manager wanted me to do and work the team. I was more of a street footballer, so I'd do random things off the cuff, um, so, and they allowed me to do that. So that's why I thrive there. Um, same with Bournemouth to a certain degree. Like any manager that allowed me to kind of do or play my natural game, that's that's where I perform the best. If I was restricted and if we were playing in a team that was just long ball and they wanted me to just chase kind of um, flick-ons and stuff, it, it just didn't really resonate with me. Um but yeah, so that was my experience at, at Macclesfield and like I said, really, really enjoyed that. It was a, it was a great experience. But unfortunately, um, because of our kind of lack of uh, results, um, the management team got the sack and um, Keith Alexander came in. And oh. I knew straight away, uh, whilst I got on with Keith uh, off the pitch, very, very nice man. Um, uh, and obviously, God rest his soul, sadly he passed away. Yeah. But um, he, I knew his game was just very much long ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so bear in mind, so again, I'll just give you a brief understanding of what happened. So they got the sack, Keith came in, brought some players in from teams that he'd managed before. Um, I played more or less every game. I started every game that season uh, for Macclesfield, playing really, really well. Keith comes in and then I wasn't in the squad for his first two games. His first two games were away games. I wasn't injured and I didn't even travel. Just gone. Not in the squad at all. And I knew before that I wasn't his type of player anyway. It, it is what it is. That's just how it is. Um, and I remember fans asking, um, asking like, what's going on with Danny? Like, I remember Keith got in, uh, interviewed by one of the press guys after one of the games and they lost both, both of those games away. Um, and one of the press guys said, oh, is he, like, is Danny injured or has he done something wrong? And Keith said, no, he's not injured. He hasn't done anything wrong. I think he said, like, oh, like, Danny's, Danny's a bit of a maverick, um, which I don't think, he, he didn't mean any malice with it, but I didn't really, I didn't like the comment at the time, because uh, I thought at the time he suggested that I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and it was never that type of thing. And I didn't want people to get a misunderstanding of my character, because I was never like that. Um, but I think what he meant was my style of play. It was a bit maverick at times and a bit off the cuff. Um, and it just didn't suit his style of play. Um, at that point, so they lost those two games. And I, I was due to go in and ask him, oh, look, is there anything I need to do to get in the team? That was always a question I'd always ask, rather than going in and saying, why aren't I playing? And that's like a, a negative question. It's like a closed question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, Say what can I do to get in the team? It shows that you're willing to do something, willing to act on uh, what the manager wants, and also it shows that you're kind of mindful of kind of the manager's style of play and things like that. So I, I went and I had a meet, and I, this is this is Keith, and like I said, very nice guy, and he probably saw it coming. So I didn't even get to ask the question. He just said, "Look, um, you're going to be playing the next game." So he'd already won the battle because he said, you're going to play the next game. So there's no point me now asking why why didn't I play the other two games. My game, my, my mindset now was, okay, well, I'm playing the next game. Just need to make sure I play well. 
and then stay in the team. And he knew that he was in a bit of a situation, it's a bit of a conundrum because I was playing really well before he came. So for him to like not even have me on the bench those first two games, and also they, they lost those two games, people started asking questions, like I said. So he was in a situation where he probably had to kind of uh, play me just as a result of my previous performances and also he needed results. And luckily for me, we played away. I think it was Barnet. The game was a bit scrappy. Uh, I did okay. And he, he actually said I did well, um, which I was surprised at. And then I played more or less every game until the end of the season. And I got awards at the end of the season and things like that. Um, so, yeah, just one of those situations. And then uh, the following season, that was my second year, he was still manage, managing the team. And um, I was in and out of the team then. Um, and then again, it was just time to move on just because I knew that I didn't want to be in a situation where I was in and out of the team and just getting frustrated with the style of play, not suiting me and things like that. Um, but yeah, I wasn't the only one to feel that way. There was a bunch of players who found it difficult purely because we've gone from passing and, and obviously moving and playing a certain type of passing football to kind of just launching it from the back and hoping for the best, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's how it kind of ended. There was no real malice. Um, but yeah, it was just there was a bunch of us that kind of uh, didn't get off with new contracts and uh, just had to move on, and and that's what happens sometimes in football. So yeah, um, but your next two clubs, um, Kettering and Tamworth, um, both in the non-league. Um, how did the transition from league to non-league football differ? How did the two leagues? The, the league football and the non-league football, how did they differ? Um, in terms of facilities and everything like that, uh, playing styles, pretty much the same kind of uh, conference and, and league two at that point. Um, if you bear in mind, it's, it's obviously improved a lot now, but even back then you had players like myself who come from a higher level. So it's not like you've been born and bred at those kind of standards. We, we kind of came from a higher level and we took that kind of level of uh, intensity, game understanding and uh, ability uh, and filtered down the leagues. So the league was already awash with kind of players like myself who being at a higher level. So um, not much difference from that perspective in terms of training. Um, we used to train every day at Kettering from what I can remember anyway. So Kettering one was a bit difficult initially, purely because, again, I wasn't fit. So I left Macclesfield and I struggled to find a club. <clears throat> um, and then I remember there was a couple of players there. Francis Green, who was previously at Macclesfield with me, he had already signed for, for Kettering. Um, and a couple of others that I was familiar with. And I remember, again, um, just ringing around clubs and stuff. And it got to the stage where I just needed to play. And I played one reserve game against, I think it was QPR. Um, okay in the game again very difficult purely because didn't know anyone and then trained a few times and then just signed a, a contract it was just again a minimal contract but again it was a contract so i was happy i was affiliated with the club and stuff a bunch of games there um just a bit of a strange situation at, at kettering at that point with regards to the hierarchy uh, so there was a bit of contention between management and the owner of the club and wages and things like that and it was just a bit up and down a bit unprofessional from that perspective but a case of just concentrating on what you need to do on the pitch um but sometimes it was sometimes it was frustrating because i'd get man of the match and the next game i wouldn't play and 
sometimes the manager would say, look, you're not playing against this team because uh, they're a big team and they're just going to launch it and they're very physical. Uh, so I'm playing a, a different team and then I'll be on the bench and then the game would kick off and 15, 20 minutes into the game, the team that was so-called long wall kind of merchants were passing it around. So I just thought I was just getting uh, messed around a little bit. And for me, like, honestly, I'm always one, especially when I'm playing, just just be honest with me. Just say, look, I can't pay, I can't play you for whatever reason. And, and that's it. Whether I like it or not, I can live with that honesty. But if you're just going to give an excuse to appease me at that point, and then the excuse, naturally you can see it's not it's not true that you told me. It's just a, an excuse. It's obviously going to uh, grate on me. Um, so that actually happened to me in a particular game. I think it was against Stevenage. Uh, I just remember looking at the bench. The bench, my other players knew why I wasn't playing because they said, look, why aren't you playing? What did the gaffer say? So I told them, and then 10 minutes into the game, they're looking at me saying, this team passing it. Like, so it just didn't make any sense to me. So again, frustrating times there, but uh, the time of thing came about whilst I was there. Uh, I didn't actually know they were interested in me. Uh, and I remember one summer, it was a summer after the season at uh, Kettering, I called the gaffer. Um, just kind of introduced myself and I said, would you be interested in signing me? Expecting to hear, oh, well, not sure, maybe coming on trial. But he actually said, yeah. So when he said, yeah, I was taken aback. And I knew it was a team that played, wanted to play football. So again, the manager there, he had actually played under Nigel Clough. He was actually a, a European Cup winner uh, back in the day. Uh, he was in the first team at Martin Forest as a left back, I believe, or maybe a right back. Um, in the first team as a youngster. So he came away with a medal there and he always always knew that Tamworth wanted to play and he reiterated that to me on the phone as well. So it was very reassuring. So again, signed for them in the off-season um, and then yeah, had a good experience at Tamworth, played some of uh, my best football there again under a manager who wanted to play football. Uh, but again, he was uh, it's one of those where he, he ended up getting, I think he ended up getting a sack, I believe, or he may have left. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he may have got the sack, essentially because, again, we were playing football, but just not picking up the results. Um, so, yeah, that, that ended and he ended up going, I think he managed York after that. And we had Des Little as a, a player at the time, one of the senior players, and he ended up being the manager as well. Um, we continued in the same vein. Uh, so, again, still enjoying my time at Tamworth. Um, but at that point, I was like 30, 31. Uh, my daughter then was three years old. Um, so things had changed for me and I was coming towards, I wouldn't say the back end of my career, but I was, I was coming towards that kind of uh, stage of my career and I was thinking, well, what next? I don't want to be in a situation where I'm going into the summer now and I'm thinking, oh, well, where am I going to play? Am I going to be going on trial? I just didn't want to go through that again. I've had enough of doing that. And I thought my performances over the last few years didn't warrant going on trial again. Um, and then one of my teammates, uh, Jay Smith, who used to play for Aston Villa youth team, he was playing at Tamworth, good player as well. Um, he actually put me in touch with someone who said potentially got an opportunity abroad. He had contacts in a country abroad. So I was like, okay, well, let's see how this materialises. Spoke on the phone um, and then you know, literally within, I'd probably say a week or two, um, I, I found myself, myself in Iceland. So off the back of my Tamworth experience, picked up a bunch of awards. So again, really, really uh, good times. And then 
um, again, the Iceland thing came about. So it was a case of, okay, well, I'm going to Iceland for a few days just to like kind of prove my fitness, see if I like it there and, and go from there. What I did, so at the top of the conversation, I mentioned some videos that I've got on myself or clips of gold and stuff on YouTube. So I put those onto YouTube knowing that if there was a club abroad who had never seen me play, it was an opportunity for them to see what I can do uh, on, on the internet. And the guy that I spoke to who had the contacts abroad said, look, I'd advise you to do that just so that they can actually get, a see, uh, get to see what you do and how you play. So bearing in mind, I played like left wing or right wing sometimes most of my career. I'd probably say 99% of my career, professional career that is. Um, they wanted to sign me as a left back. So I went out there anyway, like I said, still no idea whether it was going to materialise. Enjoyed my three or four days that I was there. Um, they actually wanted me to stay. So they wanted me to sign and stay. And I was like, well, great that you want to sign me, but I haven't even said like goodbye to my family and I haven't even got enough clothes here. So they're like, okay, no problem. Uh, go back home, spend the week at home, say your goodbyes and then come back and you'll spend the season over here. So I was like, this is amazing. So um, again, went home, said goodbye to my family. And that was quite difficult just because, like I said, I was only what, just, I was, I'd only been married less than a year. Um, my daughter's three and I'm now going to be moving to the other side of the country on my own and leaving them behind. So uh, it was difficult, but at the same time, they were obviously receptive of it. Um, purely because they knew I was doing it for the right reasons. And it also meant that I didn't have to kind of worry about finding another club. Iceland is amazing. It's, it's like, that's my second country now. And if I ever speak about Iceland or like to someone, I always say, look, you need to go and visit it. Because it's easy to think, oh, because it's called Iceland, it just snows all the time and it's freezing. Yeah, that happens in the winter. And I didn't actually experience that. But Kind of in the summer, springtime, it's pretty much the same temperature as the UK. And luckily for me, back in 2012, when I was actually there from like May to September, back in the September, early October, it was actually quite warm um, throughout the, the summer months. So I had a great time out there. Great team. I'd probably say after leaving Leicester, my time in Iceland, that was the most professional I'd ever felt as a player. And the reason I say that is because the level that I was playing at, so the level, people often ask me, what, what was the level like? At? What was the standard like out there? I'd say bottom end, bottom end, no, yeah, top end. I'd probably say, what, how would I describe it? I'd probably say bottom end championship, top end league one. That's what I've always said. So the standard was, was decent and we were very much a passing team. Uh, and like I said, we could mix it. So we, we could get aggressive. We could get it down and play. We played from the back. I was playing left back. Never played left back. And I, when I was out there, I remember thinking to myself, like, could I have made it higher in the UK if I just went out and played as a left back? Because when I was in Iceland and I was playing left back and I was still in contact with some of my teammates in the UK that I previously played with, or ex-teammates, so to speak. And when I said I was playing left back, they would always say, oh, you can't defend. Because I was always a winger. But because I had that mindset of a winger and what a winger wants to do, and I was fast, I knew that as a left-back, I knew what the winger wanted to do, whether they wanted to come inside or outside. And I knew they were never going to beat me for pace. So for me, playing left-back out there in that team was amazing because 
all the attacking play went through the left back. So if the keeper got it, the, the wing, the, the wingers would kind of tuck in and the fullbacks would split, get the ball from the keeper and then either play into midfield or play out wide. That's how we played. So I was always on the ball. I was always tackling. I was winning headers. It was crazy. I, I loved it, but it was hard because it was up and down. So in, in effect, I was kind of playing as a wing back. Um, I, I loved it out there. It was great. Like I said, the weather was great. The people were great. Uh, the food was great. It was the most, probably, most healthy I felt in my life when I was in Iceland. I put on half a stone of muscle. We had an Olympic gym at the training ground. So the training ground was basically the stadium. So we had trained at the stadium. Um, it was like an Olympic stadium. So we had a running track and obviously the, the football pitch and minor like pictures of in and around the vicinity as well. And we had like an indoor facility. So most teams out there, if not all of them, especially back in 2012-13, they had indoor facilities to naturally cater for the winter time when there's bad weather and not much sunlight and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was just the facility was great. We had an Olympic gym and I was in the gym literally every day just doing weights and I put on so much muscle. It was ridiculous. And that was the first time in my career I'd actually put on, put on muscle to the point where I could actually physically feel it and put on weight as well. Um, and it was great. I loved it out there. And it was a great experience. Everyone was very, very welcoming. And it was just easy because a lot of players move abroad and they have to learn a second language and things. I never had to do that because everyone spoke English. Um, it was just great. And again, that was one of the managers uh, that I played under that I really, really enjoyed my experience uh, under as well. We actually won the league with about three or four games to go. Um, played... I remember when I went there and the manager said, because we play a certain style, I don't want to throw you in straight away. You need to sit on the bench, watch how we play. And then as soon as he said that, I thought, yeah, this is right for me. Because it would have been easy for him to throw me in and then take me out if things hadn't worked out. He actually did it the other way. So when I was sitting on the bench, I was thinking, actually, you guys do play a different way. Like It's just total football. And not just total football just for the sake of passing. It was passing the purpose. Uh, great ability, some of the players out there. Like we had players who couldn't even get in the 16, who were sitting in the stands, who had decent ability as well. So it was a great team. Um, and as a result of um, the previous season, I think they finished maybe second or third. And how it works over there is, if you finish like second or third, you play in the Europa League qualifiers. So as a result of that, I managed to play in the Europa League qualifiers against, uh, I think it was AK Athens in Sweden. We, we ended losing to they were a good team um but yeah i remember playing a few of those games we played one in um uh, i can't remember the name of the country now but yeah i remember playing all over the place and Liechtenstein, yeah that was it Liechtenstein. i remember playing in Liechtenstein one of the games and i remember playing um in one of the games one of the europe league qualifiers and coming off the pitch and we've won the game and i remember one of the coaches of the opposition team was standing in a tunnel and he was about 20 yards away from me and I'm walking in after shaking the players' hands and that and he's he's shouting like, like, you, you. So I'm like, who are you talking to? Looking around, he's like, you. I was like, oh yeah? And he's like, like, you were excellent today, well done and that. And that just gave me such a boost. Like, it just, it was great. And like I said, played left back and like, I just really enjoyed my time. I, like, playing in that position and obviously playing abroad and experiencing that and another opportunity to, to travel and stuff and just experience a different culture. 
Um, like I said, the food, amazing out there, and just the lifestyle and everything. Like, different because we used to train in the evenings because whilst it was professional, over there it wasn't deemed as professional. So whilst it was the top division over there, they're very much geared towards uh, an academic lifestyle. So they all had jobs. So we had uh, teachers in our team. We had people that were on other vocations. We also had a guy called John Johnson, um, who is basically, uh, is like an international uh, singer, singer-songwriter. If you go on YouTube and that, or Instagram or whatever, type in John Johnson, you'll see what I mean. When I went there, it was the first few days, and I remember people saying, oh, yeah, like, he can sing. So I was like, okay, whatever, he can sing. I'm like, no, no, he can sing. Like, he's on the radio and that over here. So I'm like, okay, whatever. You just trying to tease me like playing pranks because I'm new in that. And I was like, no. So he sang in the dressing room. I was like, okay, like you can actually sing. But then when I'm driving in the car and I could hear him like his songs coming on the radio like every day and that. And then I remember him talking to me. He's like, yeah, it's actually like a career of mine. I'm like, wow, his dad was actually the owner of the club. Oh. Really nice guy and that. And I was like, wow. And then I remember during the season, he actually went to America to sign a deal with Sony Records. He met like the top execs over there and he signed a deal with Sony Records. And I was just like, just different. It's just a different world over there. Um, but yeah, like great experience. And then I came back to the UK and I was at a crossroads whether to continue. I was 31. I knew that I'd have to work to obviously uh, forge another career uh, for myself elsewhere. Didn't really want to, well, I didn't want to be a coach or anything. I wanted to kind of try my hand in a different kind of industry, so to speak. Um, but I still wasn't sure. I still knew I could play and in, in, in play at a decent level, still fit enough. Um, but like I said, I was 31. And I didn't want to leave it too late because obviously the longer you leave leave it um, without actually kind of having any type of experience in the working world, the harder it is to find a job. That was my train of thought anyway. So whilst I knew I could probably play until I was 36, 37, maybe beyond that, I didn't really want to do that and then try and find a career in the working world. Because naturally, they're going to potentially look at your CV and think, well, you've only played sport and you're nearly 40 years old. So, again, I was at a crossroads and then I remember coming back and I had a bit of a rest because I was that was the only time in my career that I was physically and mentally tired. Because literally, when I left Tamworth, I had like a week or two break and then I went straight and played over there. So I had like two seasons back to back with minimal rest in between. So I was physically and mentally like drained. Um and, and then, yeah, so came back and I was thinking, what next? Um, and then I remember speaking to a few clubs and again, same scenario. Oh, come in on trial and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, if you don't know me by now, I'm 31. If you can't get a reference from elsewhere, like, what's the point? Don't want to waste my time. Um, so I started looking for, for jobs and I was thinking, well, what, what industries or what jobs can I get? or what's out there that can give me an opportunity based on my transferable skills. So I've always been confident talking to people and I can sell myself, but I still need someone to give you an opportunity. And some jobs require certain levels of um, like uh, academia or qualifications. So whilst I've got my GCSEs and stuff, that's irrelevant when you're looking for a job. So I started looking at jobs and I thought, oh, okay, well, estate agency, that's a respectable industry uh, for the most part. Um, it's a good starting point. Don't really need any kind of 
qualifications, I'm not talking about GCSEs, but physical qualifications to work in that industry. I just needed someone to give me a chance. And I remember applying for a few jobs, uh, doing some research and stuff. And then I managed to get an interview um, and then got through the interview stage. And then they invited me to a second interview. And I was thinking, oh, right, it's another interview. Uh, but the second interview was very, very informal. Um, and then I managed to get the job. So for me, my, my transition from football to the working world was pretty seamless. But it was seamless in the sense that it didn't take me many opportunities to find a job. It was my, my first attempt. So I didn't really ex experience that rejection. Um, but in terms of financially, that was the hardest thing. Because whilst I was never earning big money throughout my 15-year career in football, the salary that I took in my first estate agency job uh, was like a third of my salary. So imagine any job that you get, if you're then asked to take a third of that as your salary moving forward, it's, it's going to naturally affect you financially. Uh, and then obviously, I had a family, like I said, my daughter was three, I was married at the time, bills to pay and stuff. So I was very, very grateful when I got that opportunity. I was thankful I got my opportunity in the working world. I knew that was a company that would offer me an opportunity to progress because that was one of my kind of things that I was kind of I was pushing for that in the interview process. I wanted to progress, um, but at the same time, the financial uh, situation wasn't great. Um, so I just took that as an opportunity to to go and obviously learn the industry uh, and obviously get the necessary qualifications that I needed to obviously uh, push on and, and obviously earn more money. And that's thankfully what I've done. So. They were massive in, in my transition because, like I said, they they just uh, offered me the opportunity based on the fact that I saw myself in the interview, based on my transferable skills and my experiences that I experienced and gained through football. And I, I used those experiences to translate those into how I would utilise them in the workplace. And that's something I always advise people now, like use those transferable skills because whilst you may think that, you either haven't got them or you may not be aware of them or they can't translate. They definitely can. Um, you just need to be able to obviously back them up. So obviously don't don't go in and, and lie about what you can and can't do because obviously you're going to naturally need to back that up. But mm. yeah, it's, it's, again, that was just a great experience. But it was, it was hard financially, but managed to get through it and year on year I progressed and managed to surpass some people that have been in the industry for many, many years. And then, yeah, and then moved on from there into kind of different industries and, and, and different things, really. So that's kind of what, I'm 42 now. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of 10, 11 years ago. Uh, seems quite a long time ago, but, yeah, it's a, it's a good experience for me. And uh, I'm thankful that I did it at the time that I did because, like I said, I could have easily kind of carried on playing for another six, seven years and then who knows what would have happened at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's, I mean that's a great insight to see how because for me it, it it's one of these things that I don't think is talked about a lot really is is how footballers and other sportsmen um, transition when their careers end um, mm. and and it must be a real struggle for for a lot of ex pros um, but you've also completed a course in the governance the governance certificate course is that right? effective board member yeah so it's basically about being an effective board member it's all about corporate governance so for me once i've transitioned away from uh football into the working world and after kind of years of working in the state agency and 
kind of finding my feet and getting a level of understanding, building a bigger network. I've always been intrigued by like getting in the boardroom. Like, how do you get in the boardroom? Because those those jobs aren't really advertised on your typical job posts and things like that. So I always thought it was very much kind of a, a, a like a, a boys' club. Like you know, if you know someone, you've got an opportunity to get in. It's like one in one out type of thing, and it is. In some ways, it still is like that, and that that does need to change. Um, we are obviously working towards changing those things. People are aware of diversity and inclusion and things like that now. But for me, it was like, okay, well, how do I go about kind of getting into the boardroom? I know I've got working experience behind me now, but does that translate to the boardroom? Yes, to a certain degree it does, but I know that boardrooms generally, depending on what type of boardroom it is, they're looking for something else, either experience in that field or some type of, um, high-profile job role, like a director or something like that, will give you a better chance. So for me, I thought, well, what can I do to give me that bit extra uh, if I was to maybe uh, broach the opportunity of getting into a boardroom? So uh, I stumbled across through my network, someone said about this um, EBM course, Effective Board Member, and it's run by a guy called Carl George, who, again, top man, uh, Essentially, he's like all about diversity and inclusion. He's very knowledgeable about the boardroom. He's invented his own board game for, for the, about the boardroom. And his classes were very, very uh, engaging and, and things like that. So for me, I applied for it and managed to get a place. It was during lockdown, essentially. Um, so that didn't affect it really because it all translated online. Um, but if it wasn't during lockdown, it would have been like face to face. But essentially, that worked even better for me. Um, again, naturally online and integrating uh, via uh, the platform. And yeah, that course, the thing that in, in kind of made me really kind of warm to it was the fact that um, it was it was a it was a qualification that you get at the end of it, and it's fully certified. It doesn't guarantee you a job in the boardroom. You still have to go and obviously uh, sort that yourself. But uh, essentially, it was a uh, it was a course that only ran for around I think it was circa nine months. Um, so short term course, and naturally sometimes these courses can can last for like a year, two years, three years, and it's like very kind of laborious. So with it being nine months, I was like, brilliant. Um, let's let's obviously. Um, tackle it head on and like I said from day one the first session was really really engaging um, and then essentially that was it so it was tough because you learn in a new industry corporate governance whilst on paper it sounds really really boring you start to realize that literally everything everything has a level of corporate governance in there somewhere um, so it again that that made it a lot more uh, enjoyable uh, gave me a bit of purpose as to kind of my my goal was to complete the course uh, and then start looking for um, boardroom roles and that's essentially that's what I did um, so after completing the course and the course and the exam at the end difficult the exams were difficult to be honest um, cool. I actually failed my first one um, and then I remember my wife just saying look you've obviously done the course just give it another go um, because obviously you want to pass. I did it uh, again, and I passed. Um, so again, that was so happy when that that happened. And then I applied for boardroom roles, and essentially I, I gave myself um, 
I wanted to give myself like a year or two to try and get in the boardroom, but literally happened within like a few months. Um, so yeah, uh, I secured two boardroom roles. Um, I've recently uh, resigned from one. I say resigned in inverted commas, but it was my choice just because circumstances and things like that. Um, but yeah, I'm now currently an executive director as well at the Sunnyhill Care Housing Association. So yeah, really enjoying that. I've kind of been there a year and a half now. Um, so whilst I'm doing that, it doesn't actually impede on my general nine to five job, um, which is good as well, um, because the board meetings you generally do kind of five or six a year. So I normally take a day off when I've got a board meeting and stuff. But yeah, it's good, really, really good. And obviously making those big decisions. Uh, so it's, I mean, I remember my first couple of uh, board meetings and I was thinking, wow, I'm really here. Uh, and obviously your voice does count because naturally you're making decisions and that those decisions invariably get taken forward. So you're making an impact on, on people's lives moving forward. So now I'm really, really thankful for the course, really enjoyed it. And anyone that's thinking about maybe getting into the boardroom, especially if you like me, who's come from a sporting background, it's something that's worthwhile looking into. Um, but yeah. Great. That's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm currently, uh, educating myself as well um i'm doing a couple of course courses and um i mean i'm 37 and um i found it quite hard getting my head back into the books again after you know like since leaving your school days and your college days and, yeah. and then you know getting your head back into books again it, it was it's quite difficult so i mean what what you've done sam you've got us amazing after after your playing days but you've also got a podcast um, you are a podcaster now, um, Back of the Net and Beyond, I believe it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I use the term podcast lightly because I haven't got all the gear. Uh, I literally do it via Zoom, uh, as I mentioned to you up there yeah. earlier on. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Back of the Net and Beyond and you can find it on essentially all social media platforms apart from Twitter because I'm not on Twitter. Um, and also it's on YouTube um and all like audio uh, outlets as well so spotify apple podcast and all those ones as well uh, but yeah i started that during lockdown um uh, something that i've kind of was thinking about beforehand not necessarily a podcast but in that particular space so essentially the, the, the podcast is about um i generally speak to athletes former athletes current athletes anyone who's involved in sport to some capacity uh about their transition from sport to another career or the transferable skills that athletes have that are kind of uh, favourable to the working world uh, or anything in and around that space. Um, because often these things get overlooked and people sometimes have a misconception of sports people uh, and they assume that, okay, well, you play sport and that's all you know. Well, as we know, that's, that's not the case. Um, so it's a bit of a niche subject, um, but it's something that, like I said, I'm very passionate about and I think people need to be aware of. And I think nowadays people, especially kind of industry leaders, they are more aware of the transferable skills and the benefits that athletes do bring to the working place. Uh, but I, I still think there's a load more that can be done and a load of uh, industries and uh, organisations that aren't uh, aware of kind of the presence of athletes and what they can bring to the organization so the athletes uh have been coming on my podcast uh for about two and a half three years so yeah 2020 so lockdown i started i wanted to look back on lockdown and and kind of 
uh, identified with something that I've actually achieved during lockdown because I was I was on furlough for a period of time when I was working at a previous employer and uh, I was at home and whilst it was great, especially when the sun was out in the initial lockdown and I was with my family and stuff, I didn't want to waste that time. Um, so I used that opportunity to set up my podcast and I'd never really heard about Zoom before. Um, now everyone's aware of Zoom and, and Teams and stuff, but uh, someone told me about Zoom and I thought, okay, well, what can I do with Zoom? Um, and then I thought, okay, well, the podcast can work on there. Because initially what I wanted to do is go and speak to football clubs and maybe speak to the players there and explain about my journey and their transferable skills and the opportunities that are there for them. So I actually went into Aston Villa and also Luton Town and spoke to them and they were quite receptive as well. But then I thought, well, I've got a nine to five. If I was to come in and speak to these players, whether it be once a month or once a week or whatever, I'd have to take time off work to do it, to fall in line with their kind of training schedule and stuff. So I thought, that's not really feasible. So I put it on the back burner for a bit. Like I said, then lockdown happened and I thought, still passionate about this. How can I translate my idea and put it into like fruition? And like I said, Zoom and then the rest is history. So uh, yeah, I've been doing it since then. Um, uh, and like I said, I post on, on social media, put people's story out there and just make people aware and kind of spread the word, really, because everyone's got a story to tell. Just sometimes people think they haven't, but they have. Um, and everyone's transition story is different as well. So whilst mine was quite seamless in the sense that I found a job in my first instance, financially, it wasn't seamless. Other people's story may be slightly different. It could be, OK, well, they've got a lot of finance behind them already due to the level of career that they've had in their profile but they may be finding it difficult to transfer into the working world for whatever reason so um and then there's other people who have like they already had their kind of uh transition mapped out they were doing stuff whilst they were playing they were maybe studying or they had a business on the side and then when it came to hanging up their boots or stopping whatever spot they're, they're involved in they just kind of transitioned into that naturally so there's all types of different stories out there and like I said, it's just something that doesn't cost me any money. It's something that I'm passionate about. And as a result of that passion, it just feels it feels right. It's a lot easier for me to do. Yeah, um, I've got to confess, I've watched a couple of your videos today on there. Um, and I'll urge anybody that's listening or watching this podcast to um, check check Danny's um, Back of the Net and Beyond Out. Because I've, I've seen the one today with Narada. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which was a, a real good watch. And I started watching one with Stephen Cook. Yeah. Um, and I believe you've also had Lewis Buxton on there. I believe it's on well. there. Yeah. Chris, Chris on there as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to um, carry on checking them out um, because I thought the Narada one was great today. Um, mm. Just finally, long last question. Um, what have you thought of, Form of season this year, back in the big time. Well, it's obviously a bonus that they managed to stay up and they managed to do that a few games before the season ended. Um, so that's obviously massive for them. Um, I think, I think them sustaining a place in the Premier League is is always going to be massive. And I think naturally at this stage, I think that will always be their goal until something changes, maybe change of owner, bring more finances, and or whatever it may be. Um, if that if that doesn't happen, I think it's just about for them staying in the Premier League, and we all know that's not an easy thing to do. Um, if you look at Leicester City season, 
obviously they've just got relegated, which is very unfortunate. So, yeah, I think they had some decent performances. Uh, I think O'Neill come in and obviously he was familiar with the club, club beforehand anyway. Uh, he's done a decent job. He's, he's obviously very studious. He seems like he, he knows what he wants from the players. Uh, comes across very well as well. Very good uh, on the camera. Easy on the eye uh, when it comes to obviously uh, expressing himself when he's getting interviewed and stuff. So that always bodes well. And obviously, naturally, Bournemouth always feels like a family club to me. Um, so um, with someone like him at the helm, I think it kind of works quite well. Um, but yeah, I think they seem to be in a decent place. Uh, and just long may continue. I think, like I said, initially at this point in, in time, I think it's just about sustaining uh, their, their time in the Premier League until maybe things change. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you ever so much, Danny, for joining us on Up the Chosen All Departments. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your story and uh, of your career. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming on. Oh, no problem at all. And, and obviously, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been great. Cheers. Thank you. And there we have it, Cherries fans. That was the evening with Danny Thomas. And that was a great insight to not only his career, but what he's doing today. And obviously, unlike a lot of people in football, um, he's not obviously transitioned into the coaching side of the game. He's gone on to many other things. And it, that was a really good insight. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I um, hope you did as well. Uh, but till the next time, up the Cherries. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.